Uh, well, uh, we want to jump right into the sermon this morning and uh, just kind of talk about uh, some of the things. When we walk out our doors, oftentimes uh, it can feel a little scary because the world in which we live can be scary. Uh, and, and because of all the fears that uh, we exhibit in society, psychologists and doctors have come along and created uh, terminology for the different fears we face. And so uh, this morning, I just want to kind of look at some of these fears. Some of them uh, are very reasonable. All right. The first two are very reasonable. The first one is glossophobia. All right. And it is the fear of speaking in public. All right. How many of you have that fear? All right. A lot of you probably would not want to be where I am at right now. Uh, I remember I, I still exhibit this fear from time to time, especially when I'm talking uh, to peers uh, and then talking about a subject I don't really know a lot about. All right. That's <coughs> generally when I feel the fear. All right. And, and my mom, I remember growing up, uh, she uh, knew this was a fear that most people had. And so as any good mom, she forced me to speak in public. All right. Anytime some uh, we were in Cub Scouts a lot, and, and anytime there was some speaking part, uh, she would raise her hand and say, my son will do that, to which I said, shut up, Mom, shh. <laughs> but she did. She, she got me up there, and, and the first few times she'd walk up with me, but eventually she kicked me to the curb and made me do it by myself, okay? But eventually, uh, this isn't as big of a deal for me. Uh, the next one uh, I still have a little bit of, and that's arachnophobia. Uh, maybe you watched the famous movie of the giant spiders by this name, uh, B-class horror movie from the 90s, I think. Uh, and, and this is the fear of spiders. And, and for me, it's not the little spiders. It's the big ones, right? You see the, the ones that are uh, tarantula or bigger. Those scare the daylights out of me. Or the quick ones, all right? So you know the ones that get away and you have no idea when they're going to pop their heads again? Uh, that scares me, okay? And I remember as a five-year-old uh, laying in bed one night and looking up, and there was a spider on, on right above me, and, and that scared me. And I yelled for my dad. I said, Dad, Dad, Dad. And he came in. And he goes, what? It's just a spider. And then he went to swat, and it was a fast one. So when he swat, he missed. All right? And I said, that's why I'm scared. And he's had to swat a couple times before he caught it. But, so there's some reasonable fears out there. There's some that I don't think are as reasonable. All right, like this next one, which is uh, paladophobia. It's the fear of bald people. Sorry, Bernie. And Thomas is shaking his hand. Yeah, for me, bald people aren't necessarily scary, but there's some people out there that are scared of it. Or you can go the complete opposite uh, with this next one, which is pogonophobia, uh, and that is the fear of beards. So... So what about people like Derek, who has bald and beards? <laughs> See, Derek does scare me a little bit, so, so I, do, I do understand a little bit of this. And beards can have diseases, and not diseases, bacteria, we should say it like that. So, so there's, fear, there's lots of fears out there. And there's a whole list of these fears uh, that you can find on the interweb, and, uh, and, and, and some of them are reasonable, some of them... It doesn't make sense to us, but there are people out there that have these fears. Uh, well, today we're wanting to finish our series that we've been in uh, for this last month called Jesus Uncensored. And what we've been looking at are these phrases that Jesus taught and said uh, that, if we truly believe, should radically change the way in which we live. 
And so uh, because it's the last sermon in this series, I do want to kind of recap briefly uh, what we've talked about to this point. Uh, We talked about how Jesus taught uh, that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. All right, and, and, and when we look at the world, sometimes it looks like evil is winning. All right, and, and we get fearful and we huddle into our own little shell and keep to ourselves as a church. And that's not how we're supposed to live. Jesus has won the victory. The gates of Hades will not overcome us. And so we should be living as if we've already won because we have. All right, and so that was part of what we were talking about. We talked about uh, a couple weeks ago about Jesus being the only way to heaven. Jesus said, uh, there is no other way to the Father except through me. And if we truly believe that the only way people get to be with God for all of eternity is through Jesus, then we have an obligation to tell people about Jesus. Because if there were not, they're not coming to heaven with us. And that's a sad day if we think that that's not how we're supposed to live. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, Jesus being asked a bunch of questions, and one of the questions was, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, love God with all you are and love other people. All right, so loving God and loving other people. And he says all of everything in the Bible comes down to these two things. If you do these two things, then we're living the right way. But a lot of times, I don't feel like we uh, are loving God in all aspects of our lives, whether that's at our works or at our homes. For some of us, it's multiple places. We're not loving God everywhere, uh, and we're not always loving of other people as well. And then last week, we talked about Jesus' prayer that we all as Christians be one. And oftentimes, uh, we are divided more than we're united. Right? And Jesus' prayer is that we reach the world, and we do that by being one with one another. And I challenge you, if you're not in union with someone who's in the church, you should be. Well, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, and so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, and I'm going to ask that the lights get raised just a little bit so they can read this. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles in front of you, and we encourage you to... Um, Find this. This is the very last uh, chapter of Matthew. Uh, it's actually the last section that we'll be in as well. Uh, and as you're turning, I want to kind of talk about what Matthew is doing. Matthew uh, is actually a very brilliant book. It is very good if literate, 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 literate not literally, literacy. <laughs> Sorry, it's having a fun time saying that word today. All right, so it's a very good uh, book. <laughs> And, and the way they wrote it was very, very done very well. And, and he's using this last section kind of as a bookmark to a bunch of different things that he's been talking about up to this point. Uh, in chapter 27, uh, Matthew spent a lot of time before 27 talking about the last week and last day of Jesus' life. And then chapter 27, that's where we get uh, Jesus being uh, crucified and buried. Uh, and at the very beginning of chapter 28, uh, Jesus comes back from the dead after three days like he said he would. Uh, and he tells a couple of ladies that come across him, and he says, go tell the disciples that, uh, to meet me in Galilee. And so that's kind of where we pick up here uh, in verse 16. So this is what verse 16 says. It says, uh, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, uh, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Uh, a couple of things here. One is the stylization change in Matthew. Up to this point, Matthew, when he's referring to the disciples, has always used the 12. 
All right, but at the very beginning of chapter 27, uh, we see that Judas uh, hangs himself for the remorse that he feels for turning in Jesus. Uh, and so now we don't have 12 guys, we have 11. And so Matthew makes that point there. And he, he tells us that they went to the mountain that Jesus had talked about. Now, if we read Matthew chapter 28 again, we don't really see Jesus tell them, go to the mountain. All right, we just say, go up to Galilee. So uh, at some point in time, they had come to the conclusion that this is where Jesus wanted them to go. And so the question is, is what mountain are we talking about? When you read the book of Matthew, pretty much everything that's important happens on a mountain. All right, uh, Jesus is crucified on Mount Calvary. All right, uh, there's a bunch of different mountains in the region of Galilee that Jesus does things in. Uh, one of them is he preaches a sermon on the mount. It's three chapters long in Matthew. All right, aren't you glad I'm not preaching that sermon today, right? All right it's a pretty long sermon. Uh, I only have 26 minutes left. It's about the same time as last time. We're on pace here. Uh, and and so, uh, so maybe that's the mountain that we're talking about. Maybe they knew, hey, it's where he taught us all these great things, you know. Uh, there's a mountain where Jesus is transfigured. He, his glory is revealed for all it is before Peter, James, and John. And so maybe that's the mountain that they're supposed to be at. Or maybe it's another one that they hang out. Like I said, mountains are important in the book of Matthew. And here we're at another mountain, and it's another important scene. And we see here that when they see Jesus, their initial reaction is to worship Jesus. But there's doubt. And when we look at that word in English, we think, oh man, they don't, they don't really believe. Right, but the Greek word here it isn't about unbelief. The Greek word here is about hesitation. Right, they have hesitation towards stuff. And you've got to ask the question, is, what's this doubt? What's this hesitation? What are they hesitant of? And I, I think it could be a couple of things, and Jesus is going to relieve both of these hesitations. Uh, one of them could be uh, what they're doing. You know, they're worshiping Jesus. And when we look in the Old Testament especially, they were taught all their lives, these Jewish men, that the only person you were to worship is God and God alone. And here is Jesus, and here they are worshiping, and maybe, maybe they're a little hesitant towards that. A great example of this in the Bible would be uh, from Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, there's a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa. Uh, and Herod... Uh, uh, goes out before a crowd and he speaks to this crowd at the very end of the chapter. Uh, he had just brokered a deal with uh, a couple of cities because they were in need of food, and he's talking to the crowd about this deal. And as he's talking, the crowd looks at Herod and says, this is not the voice of a man, but the voice of God. And they're worshiping him and giving him honor like they would give God honor. And Herod, he hears it and doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't stop them. And we're told at the end of that chapter that God, in retribution, strikes Herod down dead. Because, in the Bible, the only person you're to worship is God and God alone. And yet, maybe that's what they're feeling here. This hesitation, this doubt, should we really be doing this? This doesn't feel right because of everything that they've learned. I think of it this way. Uh, every once in a while, you'll be in a job and you'll be doing something uh, a certain way that you were taught uh, by your employer, this is how we do it, this is how we do it, this is how we do it. And then suddenly something changes. Maybe you get a new boss, maybe uh, you switch jobs in the same line of work, and rather than doing it this way,
they're, to- they're telling you to do it that way over here. All right? and, and it's completely opposite of everything that you learn, and yet you're asked to do this instead. And the first few times that you do it, it doesn't feel right. It feels like you're doing something wrong, like you're missing something. And so I I kind of feel like this is probably what's happening is it's not that it's wrong that they're worshiping Jesus, as we'll see in a second, but it just doesn't feel right because they're not used to it. And so maybe that's their hesitation. All right, maybe their hesitation has to deal with the future. You know, for three and a half years, they'd spent a lot of time with Jesus, following him around, watching him teach, watching him perform miracles. They've even gone and performed their own miracles. And and their expectation was that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that they were waiting for. He was the one that was going to establish God's kingdom on earth. And yet, everything they thought about with the Messiah wasn't what Jesus was doing. When Jesus was arrested and crucified and and buried because he was dead, that's not what the Messiah was supposed to do. And so maybe for for them, they're coming to this mountain and they're like, man, this is not what we thought it was going to be like. And maybe they're a little hesitant towards what is in store for them. Because everything that they thought was true isn't really how it is. And so maybe that is what it is. And, and a lot of times we can be hesitant towards our own future. You know, we, we had questioned whether what we're doing is right or wrong from time to time. You know, we might have this, should we do this for God or should we not? And so all we need to know from all this is there's doubt in them, there's hesitation, and Jesus is going to reassure them. And in our lives, these words that Jesus is going to speak in the rest of this chapter should reassure us in a lot of ways. All right, the first thing that Jesus says in verse 18 is, uh, he comes to him and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And so he makes sure that they understand that them worshiping him, it's okay, because all authority is his. And it kind of uh, reminds us of something else that's happened in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized, and then he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. And at the end of the 40 days, uh, we, we see that Satan comes to Jesus, and he tempts him. And he gives him three different temptations, but the very last one takes place on a mountain. And on this mountain, uh, Satan shows Jesus the entire nations of the world and, he said, and all the glory that they uh, have. And he says to Jesus, hey, I can give you all of this if you simply bow down and worship me. And in response, Jesus uh, looks at Satan and says, get away from me. Uh, and he quotes scripture. He says, worship the Lord your God only and serve him alone. And on this mountain, Satan is saying, I can give you the entire world if you'll just do this one thing. And yet at the end of Matthew, on another mountain, we see that because Jesus did what he was supposed to do, not only does he have the entire world, all authority over all nations, but he also has authority over heaven as well. And what God gave Jesus was much better than what Satan was offering. And it happens because of what Jesus was doing. And he has all authority, and because he has all authority, he is worthy of our worship. And he's worthy of the worship of the disciples here. He has power beyond all compare. He is Lord and Master, and he is worthy of this. And we should have this insurance knowing that Jesus, when he's on our side, he can do whatever he wants to do. 
And he can do whatever he wants to do through us. And that should be encouraging to us. But not only that uh, does he answer that hesitation, but he gives them another reason why he should trust him. He gives them a future, and that future is found in verses 19 uh, through 20. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, comm- teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And, he, and we'll stop there for a second. All right, and, and, and Jesus looks at them, and he gives them one final command, okay? He gives them uh, what's repeated in Acts. We read earlier in the communion meditation. All right? it, it's the core of the church. It's the reason why the disciples are here. Jesus easily could have said to the disciples, okay, guys, great for following me. Let's go to heaven. You know, he could have taken them with him and, and spared them the sufferings and the stonings and the beatings and all that they were going to have to face, uh, the deaths that they all encountered. But instead, he says, I have a job for you. All right? And he gives them a job because while Jesus' work was done on the cross and the resurrection, the disciples' job was just beginning. Their hesitations to what their future holds, it was answered in what Jesus says, I have a task for you, and it's to make disciples. At Kentucky Road, we have a couple of different core beliefs, and two of them come from this verse. One of them is that we want to be a church that's seeking the lost. The other one is we want to be a church that's making committed disciples. And it comes from this, because this is the core of who we are as Christians, not just as a church. This command, while Jesus gives to the eleven on this mountain, is a command for all of us, not just them. And when we look at it in English, it looks like there's a bunch of different commands in this, but in Greek, there's only one, and that command is to make disciples. Everything else in this sentence hinges on that one command. You are to be making disciples. This is what you're supposed to do. And as for the going, that's an expectation. Jesus expected his disciples to go. It could be translated, as you're going about, as you're on your way, you are to make disciples. And for us, as we are living our lives, our job is to make disciples everywhere we go. We don't have to travel to Timbuktu. We don't have to travel to Taiwan. We can, for many of us, be missionaries in our own states, in our own city, in our own families for some of us. And what we're supposed to do in all those situations is to make disciples. Every one of us should be in the baptistry at some point in time in our lives. Not being dunked, but dunking. It's not the job of the elders, and it's not the job of the preachers alone. It is the job of every Christian here to make disciples. Do we truly believe that Jesus said these words? Do we truly believe Jesus with all we are? And if we do, this should radically change the way in we live, because if we're not making the disciples, we're missing the point of what it means to follow him. We're commanded to do this. And he gives us a guideline. There's two things you should be doing. You should be baptizing and teaching. It really doesn't matter the order. They're just, he's just putting it out there. And these are the ways in which disciples are made. It's through these, these methods. And we need to be doing all we can 
to make disciples. But Jesus doesn't leave them just with the command. He, at the very end of verse 20, says this, Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And again, these words are not just for the 11 that are here. It is for all Christians everywhere. Jesus promises to be with us always until he comes back. And this should change how we live again. And here's how it should change us. A lot of times there's things that are scary in this world. I remember I was a freshman in high school and I was running cross country and I got done with the cross country meet uh, and I went into the, uh, the cross country meet was at the elementary school and I went into the elementary school, I'm assuming to use the restroom and I came out, the doors were locked and no one was there. Like my coach wasn't there. I had no parents there or grandparents. I was there by myself and it's on, and the elementary school is on the edge of town. Like there's no houses around it. All right. And I live seven and a half miles from town. All right. So so in my mind, as the sun is setting, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to get home? We didn't have cell phones. All right. So I couldn't just text them or Facebook them or anything like that. I mean, I, w- I was genuinely afraid of what I was going to have to do. Was I going to have to walk seven and a half miles? Do you know how long that would be? Maybe I should ran, ran it. You know, but I just got done running across country meet. I was scared. And then my youth minister happened to be driving by. And she pulled in and she said, hey, you need a ride home? And I said, yes, thankfully. And the moment she got with me, I wasn't afraid anymore. And this is how we need to understand about our own lives. We can be scared of different things, about, especially about making disciples. But Jesus is with us. And so we shouldn't be afraid. I think the one fear that we all have at some point in time is the fear of what other people think about us. And I think the reason why we are not more active in making disciples is we're afraid that when we start to talk about Jesus, people are going to stop being our friends. Or they're going to stop wanting to hang out with us. And so we're, to get over that fear, we just don't talk about Jesus. But Jesus says, I am with you. So even if the entire world were to decide not to be your friend because you talk about Jesus too much, Jesus is still with you. And he has all authority on heaven and earth. He has more power than anybody else. So those friends that that you think will leave you, Jesus is way more powerful than they are. So why are you afraid of them and not Jesus? Or we're too afraid of what we're going to say or the words we're going to use, or the way we're going to mess it up because we didn't say the right things. But Jesus promised in the Gospels that when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit will prompt us. That's because Jesus is with us. He's going to be there. He's going to say, hey, this is what you should say right now. Hey, you should stop talking. Hey, you should keep talking. You know, Jesus is that amazing, and he's with us. Do we understand that? There's nothing we should be afraid of. And when we're afraid of making disciples, the only way we should get over that fear, the only way we're able to get over that fear is by start talking and trying to make disciples. It's like my mom saying, hey, I got someone that can talk for you. Except unlike my mom, she's not going to kick, Jesus isn't going to kick you to the curb and make you do it by yourself. Right? Jesus is with you. Always. So what are we afraid of? What is keeping us 
from making disciples. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we're grateful for Jesus and all that he did in our lives. and We're grateful for the sacrifice. We're amazed at the miracle of the resurrection and all that it means for us. Lord, we hear these words that Jesus says, that he has all authority, that he wants us to make disciples, that he's with us through thick and thin. Though the world turn its back on us, you are there. I pray, God, that this knowledge will encourage us to make disciples in spite of the fears we may have, knowing that Jesus is on our side. Thank you, Father. Amen.